Welcome to Chris Judd's Masters of the Market, a podcast giving everyday investors access to some of the best and brightest minds in the Australian investing landscape. Today's episode is brought to you by Think Markets, the trading platform where you could trade Forex, shares, CFDs, indices, and commodities. In today's episode, I was really grateful to be able to spend some time with Mark Carnegie, the founder of MH Carnegie & Co., a Sydney-based venture capital fund with eight different platforms. Mark's a legend of the Australian business landscape. His relationships with John Singleton and John Wiley make him a massive name in the Australian finance industry. Today I was lucky enough to get his opinion on how he's investing, his investment philosophy, as well as his views on the macro themes which affect all investors. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did catching up with Mark Carnegie. Mark Carnegie, thanks for uh, joining Masters of the Market. You are our inaugural guest, so you can take that (laughs) to mean that you were my number one target or you're the first one silly enough to, to agree to do it, but really grateful for you giving me uh, some of your time. No, don't be silly. Very, very happy to do it. I just hope I don't drive the plane straight <laughs> into the mountain. <laughs> so I thought we'd um, start with just getting a feel for your early investing influences. Did a Bachelor of Science at Melbourne Uni, then went off to Oxford and did jurisprudence, which Google told me was philosophy of law. Yeah. And then went and worked for James Wolfenson, yep. who's a banker on Wall Street. Yeah. Uh, talk to me a little bit about him and, and what he taught you. So I wanted to go and um, do venture capital and Jim had a venture capital fund. I worked there in my summer, got a job offer. And then during my last year at Oxford, Jim decided to close the venture capital business. So I ended up working on Wall Street and corporate finance, which was not what I expected to do. And I didn't find that the greatest experience in the world. It didn't suit me that much, but it allowed me to really get connected into the um, US. And the thing that was absolutely the most valuable thing for me out of that whole process was an attention to detail, um, which has sort of stayed with me when I really, when it really, really matters. Because Jim had, you know, an incredible, incredible business and was. Um, rightfully regarded and still is to this day as Australia's best investment banker. He was an extraordinary guy. He knew how to deal with people, which is a hugely valuable thing. But the thing that from my investment career's point of view was most valuable is he had somebody working for him called Bobby Shriver and Bobby Shriver handed me Buffett's 86 letter and it was absolutely a revelation. And I know in a world where Buffett influences everybody these days, that was a sort of thing where he was a undiscovered quality at that stage, certainly out in the broader world. His stock was trading at 3,600 bucks a share at that. Did you buy any? I didn't, no. which proves just the fact that you really shouldn't be listening to this podcast <laughs> for investment advice. Um, but... I got a huge amount of, of um, stuff out of those early letters and I still tell the people who come here, really, it's very hard to have a conversation about investing without having read really the early stuff. I think sometime in the 90s, Buffett ended up having so much profile that he wasn't really able to do anything other than be politically correct in what he was writing. And 
whilst there's been some gems in the last 10 years, the quality of the stuff, I think, has gone down a lot. But I still tell you, go and read those early letters. It's absolutely unbelievable how much you get out of them. And they're freely available. So rather than listen to this, just <laughs> stop right now and listen go Listen to the end that. of this, then go and read the letters. That's, that's the best way to do it. Um, so the, the mid-80s, what's the investing climate then? I imagine things are pretty hot. Yeah, I mean, it was. I was there on Wall Street the day the the big big crash happened. Ninety seven. Yeah, so it's an amazing thing. But what's also amazing to realise is that actually, if you'd um, invested from the beginning to the end of nineteen eighty seven, you were up during the year. Yeah. So it's a bizarre, bizarre environment. Not the same in Australia for a whole series of reasons to do with credit, which we will go and talk about later in this podcast. But um, this is the point about any of the time in the market. The bulls have been winning for 500 years. Equities in the long term do better than anything else. Ultimately, we're all here because we're believers in capitalism. That's the first and most important thing in terms of understanding me, which is I'm a big believer in capitalism's ability to act as a lever of human betterment. And that's why I do what I do. And so be, being on Wall Street for that 87 crash, mm. I mean, I can remember I started investing in equities in the GFC and had margin loans and just had them chase me down and have never had a margin loan since. Mm. And uh, I don't know that I ever will. That's sort mm. of sh- experiencing that yep. in, in an early phase of my investing sort of shaped how I look to invest now. Mm. Did being on Wall Street and, and reasonably early uh, participant on Wall Street mm. during that crash, did that shape how you viewed markets since? Yeah, I mean, certainly the same thing, which is um, this whole, again, influences, I think, Taleb and the Black Swan, I mean, his books are getting worse and worse, but the point, viscerally understanding tail risk, actually living what that means, no matter how much you teach it in a class, until Mm. you've actually seen that and understand that things that are meant to be uncorrelated are uncorrelated until they're perfectly correlated and things that were not meant to happen absolutely happen and come back and bite you. I think that scar stays with everybody. Um, And then the question is, somebody said to me, I don't know whether, not to me, but in a podcast was, it's really, everyone sort of learnt that lesson. It wipes out 90% of the people who say, I'm never going to do it again. What you're trying to do as an investor is, you know, another cliche, be fearful when other people are being greedy and greedy when other people are fearful. And so what I found, the big lesson out of the Wall Street 87 crash was the Bell Resources Bell Group convertible bonds were trading at, I think, sort of low 20s. This is Alan Bonds Group, Bell Group, yeah. right? Well, no, it was it was Bonds Group by that stage, but oh, it was getting close to being that, but it was Holmes of Courts Group. Okay. And, any, I, there wouldn't be a kid who's doing an internship here who couldn't have understood that actually Bell Resources was money good and Bell Group was absolutely broke. But they traded five points next to each other because it was just the name and mm. everybody was um, chucking them out at that stage. So that was the point at which I said actually fundamental analysis and the perfect market Um Perfect. The perfect market market idea is absolute rubbish, and fundamental analysis really can make you money. And so that was 
the moment at which I started migrating across to believing that an investment business is actually a reasonable way to make money over the long term. And is that sort of in conflict with a lot of people's views now in terms of passive investing and how they want to allocate capital? Don't you think that fundamental principle that in capitalism, money finds the place where it's most efficient? That's So I think the point about indexing is really with a whole series of behavioural and cognitive biases, being able to carry the hurdle of the expense ratios of an active money management business, that's a really, really tough case to make. I've ended up for a whole series of reasons, and this obviously I conflict with you, is staying away from the listed markets. So I've just had my head handed to me every single time I tried to do better than investing in um, in index funds. So I've come to the view that in your world, just put the money in an index fund or give it to Berkshire Hathaway and go home. In the end, in the long term, the fee drag of trying to chase performance is yeah. going to be really, really bad. Whereas I've not found the same in um, private markets. And interestingly, in the private markets, David Swinson, who's the sort of legendary guy who runs the Yale Endowment, has also said it's an interesting thing because the difference between the manager quality in the best quality equity manager, you probably earn 50 or 150 basis points better than anybody else, um, and yet the ability to work out who that person is in the listed market is really, really hard, whereas the difference between the, media, <clears throat> the median and the top quartile private equity managers is a thousand basis points and it's just glaringly obvious yeah, who's yeah. an idiot and who's not. So it's, I mean, I still think there are imperfect markets in the world, um, but I think, again, to quote Buffett, markets are, per, are approximately perfect most of the time. So you've got to recognise when are the dis market dislocation and that's the point at which you want to go into some sort of cognitive override so changing gears i've read in some of the articles i've read on you you've described your upbringing as one of immense privilege dad was sir rod uh, roderick carnegie you don't seem to have had any of that shame of privilege if you like that a lot of people particularly younger people have have a privileged upbringing seem to speak of yeah singo always said you've got the best of both worlds. You've got a silver spoon in your mouth and a giant chip on your shoulder. <laughs> so Where perhaps, does that come from, do you think? I don't know. It's a really, really interesting question. But for whatever reasons, I was sort of desperate to prove myself, get out from underneath Dad's shadow. Also, interestingly, he was always interested in scale businesses, moving large numbers of people, whereas I've always been interested in thinking about the attacker hand or the path not travelled or other different ways to go. So I don't know. You know. I haven't done enough work on myself to, <laughs> to know <laughs> the answer. haven't sat long on a couch <laughs> in the ceiling yeah, for long yeah, enough. Yeah. So those are some of the other things that picked up. I, I thought um, some of your comments about uh, equality and how an yeah. unequal distribution of wealth drives people harder, and that's one of the principles that mm. capitalism's uh, built on. Um, is there a point when unequal distribution of wealth becomes problematic or is it really just the equality of opportunities all we need to focus on? 
No. So, I mean, I, I went to the federal tax summit and said the top 15% of people need to pay 15% more tax. And um, as one person asked me, you know, did you get a lot of support for that view? And this was before Buffett again went out and did it. And I said, no, it's like asking turkeys to vote for Christmas. Um, I didn't get a lot of support. Interestingly, I think there's around the world more and more people suggesting that that's actually the right idea. And truthfully, that's why I support support what Chris Bowen's doing, even though it's going to be incredibly costly to me in terms of tax changes. Because I think, again, like tail risk, the whole idea of um, times in our society where the jaws of um, economic inequality open up like they're doing at the moment are the times where the countervailing power of government needs to act on behalf of the people who are being left behind. So I do not believe that um, unbridled, naked capitalism, winner take all, is actually societally productive, unconstrained, I don't. Is there a balance to how much you can raise taxes with the world being a global economy now before if people say, well, stuff is going to impact tax too much here, I'll go and move to Switzerland and pay 15% or Singapore or... Well, if you look at the maths, and there's been some people to do it, Singapore, you make it up on tax, you lose it on living costs. And I think for, yeah, you're going to lose 1%, 5% of the people. How much of those people are actually net societally productive or how many get exhausted and decide to come home and stuff like that? I don't really know. But I think... The truth is Australia is an extraordinary, wonderful place to live and a whole lot of our social infrastructure is incredibly valuable as witnessed by the number of people who want to come here in one way or the other. Um, I think you justly pay a higher tax rate in Australia than you do in Singapore. And in the past I've heard you talk about an inheritance tax Mm -hmm. and the um, utility around that. How would that work practically? Is there well, a risk you'd have? So there's all sorts of complexity around the inheritance tax, but there's also a whole lot of complexity in terms of unforeseen consequences of advant- tax advantaging all this super on the way in that was meant to pay for people in retirement, but in the end it's now just a tax-free gift to the kids who don't need it. And yeah. so the other part that you um, talked about at the beginning which is this inequality of opportunity you've got to recognize that bundled up in what's going on at the moment is huge numbers of levers of in an inequality of opportunity embedded in inequality of outcome Mm. that is you know schools really really matter stable family environment really really matters access to the deposit for your house really matters having a better commute time with young kids all of these things are now bundled together in a way that they just weren't 30 years ago and then the second part is a whole lot of the investment boom and the generational boom happened with high interest rates starting a low stock market all these tax incentives that were completely and utterly unrestricted at that stage. And a big chunk of the um, problems on inequality at the moment are this generational inequality, where it was a game that actually worked for Australia extraordinarily from the Hawke, Keating, Kelty days 
to now through both you know both sides of parliament but we've got this problem where the winners get to completely and utterly change the economics of the game for the next generation and that's the point at which i say well you're going to have to do something um mm. you don't like my inheritance tax look at all the taxes and transfers that have allowed a very small number of people to have all the capital you got to find some way to reboot the game so a lot of people will target the government when they talk about inequality and mm-hmm. what's caused that not a lot of people sort of target the reserve banks around the world mm-hmm. and particularly the federal reserve out of the states that mm-hmm. once they act the other reserve banks yep. their hands are well and truly forced mm-hmm. it would seem to me that having interest rates as low as they were not allowing as many companies to fail as should have during the last gfc mm-hmm. that to me is looks like the root cause of this huge asset price mm-hmm. appreciation and it ended up being quite deflationary for the overall economy because you've got excess capacity I think there should be more conversation around the effect of those interest rates rather than government policy on inequality. Mm-hmm. I, look, I think the people who are listening to this listen to podcasts, and I think the best podcast on this is, in fact, um, Stan Druckenmiller talking in the real, is it Real Vision? Real Vision, yeah. Yeah, podcast um, with the 13D guy about, just exactly what he would be doing and it seemed to me that he talked to Powell and Powell started to do it before Trump mouth him which is this is clearly unsustainable the way the global interest rates are at the world your point which is it's got to start from the Fed no one else and no not necessarily they just seem to escape a lot of the criticism from the everyday person inequality just gets labeled at governments and probably the federal banks of the world get a, a leave pass. But there seem to me to be two different parts. So this is an incredibly tangled question. Yeah. There's two different things going on here at the moment. The first one is asset prices and how you yeah. put them up. The people who've got them do yes. better. And that's really the Piketty argument. But there's another one, which is if you look at wage, what I call the 99% wage share of GDP, that's at an all-time low, yes. whereas the capital return... The Fed or any of the other central banks really didn't influence that set of economic... Wage inflation is globalisation largely, don't you think? But that seems to me to be yet an... Automation and globalisation. Don't you think that's most responsible for the lack of wage inflation? I think... Let me try and deal with... How much is globalization and how much is tech, right? Yeah. It seems to me from the numbers that I've seen, but it's your world more than mine, the tech element of the wage pressure we've got here at the moment is a far bigger component than the globalization component right at the moment because the beginning of the whole trade barriers, etc., have reversed over a while. So whilst I agree on a 10-year scale what you're talking about, I think on a one- or two-year yeah. scale, this thing where we've moved to this network economy and these network efficiencies, and you look at the numbers of how much earnings growth has actually come out of not the fangs, and it's virtually nothing. Mm. And so your point... I think it's a good one, which is, well, hold on, they're getting crushed as well, but I think I'd make a point back to you that's a somewhat complicated one, which is, hey, these networks seem to be 
controlling everything and they're making so much more money than everyone else at the moment, continuing to crush both labor and everybody else's mm. capital other than theirs. And then, you know, I think your point is, well, hold on, that's happening and then the all the central banks are doing this other part of it and just fueling the fire. I agree with that. But then we get to the point where the central banker was trying to do something about it. He put the rates in, mm. he was trying to normalize it and the political process suddenly said, no, sorry, we're going to call on that. You can't possibly do that. And then he's had to sort of back off with these rates. And now we're into the spiral of everybody trying to go back towards, you know, zero or negative interest rates again. And I keep on coming back to that book that was popular, what, three or four years ago, When Money Dies, about how it all unraveled in Weimar, Germany. And fiat currencies. Yeah. And just and clearly, they, I mean, I was having a conversation with somebody on, you know, blockchain and crypto this morning. And y- you can see again in the tail, in the 1% of what could happen, something really, really weird take off here at the moment. And you, you know, you really, really could. I know that the sort of early versions feel very, very clunky in crypto, but yeah, who's to say? Because that's... I haven't been doing this for very long, but just looking at the US deficits and the amount of dollars they're going to be printing, China are already mm. printing far more revenue mm. than what the US are dollars. It just seems like a race to the bottom. Yeah, big difference though. You know, current account deficit and borrowing internally, right? And there's yes. a whole lot of people who, you know, Carl Bass and people way, way smarter than me say and me. what's going on in, um, in China is far worse. But ultimately... America borrowing from the rest of the world, getting addicted to that. Whereas the Chinese have got a sort of psychological and sociological discipline, which means that I am less worried about the Chinese social project than I am on the, at the American social project. And I have to say, I'm more worried on Europe than either. So you mentioned then problems with fiat currencies. Um, you mentioned blockchain. Do you think... And again, I'm certainly not a crypto, not even a crypto novice, let alone an expert. But the the issues people talk around cryptos being there's no alternate use, and anything that's had a store of value has always had an alternate use, mm. as gold does with jewelry. And there's, there's maybe scarcity in Bitcoin, but there's not really any scarcity in cryptocurrencies per se. There can always be another currency. Mm. Does cryptocurrency need to team up with something like gold to have the best of both worlds, where there's a scarcity there? I think so. I don't think anything's emerged where I say this is the one. Right? Yeah. There's some sort of arguments that you could make that Ethereum's going to be the beneficiary when somebody does find the first real crypto gold mine. And I, I'm very negative about Bitcoin, even though people say, look, if it's a liquidity play and everyone's going to have one or two percent of their portfolio in it, I get why, because bitcoin was first it's going to do it but that's not the play that i'm interested in i'm trying to find some way to connect a a a cryptocurrency to something that looks like waze or insta plus your argument about staple it to gold so that's a sort of embedded stablecoin idea somebody's going to come up with something Mm. that actually does do that but you only spend time thinking about this, which is really a very speculative area of the investment market, if you're concerned like you are that what um, 
fiat currency is doing is driving us to a world that isn't actually going to be functioning too well in two to five years' time. Yeah, or if the only way you can see the US getting out of their debt is inflating it away. But the moment that game starts is the moment that interest rates come up. That share of, with so much debt, that share of their GDP, that is one hairy play. Yeah. I mean, you go and that's the I point. I just don't see how it, how it well, ends. Well, then you the... end up, then you got to go back and basically be reading When Money Dies Again. Yeah, you know? well, I haven't read it, so I'll, Have put, you? It on, I'll put it on my no, list. No, no, certainly. Um, if you, if, like for most of the people, la, 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 we've heard this story for yeah. 10 years, the, it's all rubbish, right? But the point is life's, any ability to actually end up doing better than the other dog is a life lived in the tail right so you got to find these very very low probability strange outcomes that's the only place that happens to be that tail risk for the for the whole fiat currency thing that is some scary place the other one which is the counterpoint which is hey guess what we've just ended up in one of those structurally deflationary worlds and these networks that have been created the big big powerful networks are just going to wring all of the surplus um, pricing power and all of the inefficiency out of the system and we're just going to be servants of five or six global powerhouse companies that's a pretty immediate and real idea when you look at you know how terrible wage growth just as much as the yeah it's the whole point you end up in one of the tales the yeah. sort of hey let's go and have a beer at the pub you know you feel good about that but it just doesn't feel sustainable given how these two completely opposing views are going in different directions so you'd like to see interventionist policies to break sort of facebook or amazon google these type of companies up i'm looking for the world's teddy roosevelt 2020 Right. Talk me through what Teddy Roosevelt did. So basically, he was the person who said all of these, um, you know, end of late 1800s, early 1900s, big, big trusts where the world was moving to monopoly or not. That America was that type of. Yeah, exactly. And he just said, enough's enough and stepped in and organized the antitrust acts, uh, organized the beginnings of creating a doctrine of countervailing power. And at the same time, he was really America's first environmentalist as well. You know, people are upset with some of the other characteristics of him in jingoism and stuff like that. But he was one serious, serious hero. And the problem is we need somebody like that for now. We've got this, you know, problems on climate on a couple of dimensions at the same time as we've got these organizations that are wringing all of the profits that are available in the world um, out for a very, very small number of companies. Yeah, the world's going to have to find some way to actually combat that and come to it. I don't think Donald, Teddy Roosevelt, come 2020. I think so. I don't think so. But I think the interesting question about where and how and where they're going to come from because back to your thing about the tax and moving to, you know, all the smart people move to Singapore, they're on that, right? I mean, people have really called bullshit on that. Now, it's not like it's going to instantaneously get fixed, but you can see that it's not, oh, we're not going to worry about tax havens anymore. It's like, yeah, all of the really powerful people have turned around and said, we've got to find some way to bring this within the range of the real I think that's probably more of an issue in the states where the yeah. tax system's different for each state and it is yeah. easier to move from Florida to LA. Yeah, to, absolutely. To and that's a good point. I missed that. 
Coming up on the show next week, I sit down with Andrew Chapman from Merchant Funds Management Group. You just got to be careful if you get stuck in the cray pot, yeah, right, which is, a, is something that's hard to get in, easy to get into but hard to get out of. Yeah, you get stuck in these cray pots, then you've got to be able to, you know, maneuver yourself or maneuver a position around in terms of you've got to be able to um, change up the board, you've got to be able to bring in the right people. And this is yeah. where I go back to what I said at the start, it generally is, is all about people. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a comment or wherever else you get your podcasts from. We spoke about the Donald and um, influence he's had on American politics. Do you think the antidote to him will be an Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez or a Bernie Sanders type? who would potentially stick their hand up to play that Teddy Roosevelt role. No, but I, I just don't know if they'll do it with as much grace. I think they're basically trying to run a 1950s failed socialist yeah. experiment. I think, yeah, and That's then the question too. is, yeah, I mean, just if you're looking for the tales of what's going around at the moment, think about this one, which is assume Sanders gets the nomination, long shot, right? And, I'm, <clears throat> and assume you get into a situation where for whatever reasons, right, it's close. And Trump says, I'm not going. What are you going to do? You know, it just embedded in everything we do is that there isn't going to be a genuine convulsion, political con- convulsion. And so when the Supreme Court in America decided to give it to Bush, not Gore, people said, yep, that's fine. But what happens if he says, no, I'm the commander-in-chief and I'm not going to go? With an expert in jurisprudence. But what if, <laughs> I, I couldn't call myself even the beginnings of that, but I just looked down that path and, you know, the Americans are talking about that um, as a realistic thing. Yeah. So well, let's bring it back to home a bit. We're investing, we'll lose ourselves in American politics. John Singleton yeah. appears from the outside to have had a, a big influence on your life and I'm yep. sure you on... On his, uh, talk me through how your relationship came about and, and your investment history. So basically, I was working for some people called Helmut and Friedman, which are West Coast buyout fund, trying to buy Fairfax, which they'd come across um, through the sort of failed Drexel junk bond in into the Fairfax leverage buyout. Um, at the same time as Brian Powers, who was a partner there, who knew Kerry from Jim... Jim Wolfenson's days connected us with them and Conrad Black to set about buying Fairfax. And we just walked into an absolute hailstorm of political backlash for the idea that Kerry had ended up owning Fairfax at that stage. And what happened was every time that Kerry, it was really in extremis and he needed somebody to help him with thinking through Australian public... um, you know, response to things that Kerry was doing. He'd call Singo. And so I was the only person who was, as it were, an employee of our structure, this Turang bid. And I got this call from Brian one day. I said, be downstairs in 15 minutes. Kerry's called Singo to say, we need to run some ads to tell us, you know, tell the world what we're doing. And the famous ad was one where Singo just drew um, on one of his big pads a picture of Kerry and just underneath had the headline, he might not be Robert Redford, but that doesn't make him Frankenstein. <laughs> and 
that was how I met Singo. And yeah. we went on to, you know, Singo played a central role in letting Turang buy Fairfax. Um, obviously, all those shareholders went before the Fairfax of today. And we just ended up being, you know, friends and drinking mates occasionally and stuff like that. And then two years later, Singer calls me up and says, mate, i got to do something with my Channel 10 shares and my advertising agency, etc." And um, anyway, I sort of was his financial advisor. We took John Singleton advertising with his 10% um, stake in Channel 10 public and used some of the money to go and buy the radio stations and had a whole series of sort of financial adventures over a long period of time. And as Singo says, how, when you look at our list of failures, did we end up actually being able to pay a mortgage? And I really, <laughs> I really don't know the answer to that. But I suppose it's, you know, you can only lose one times your money. That's yeah. true. Yeah. And was STW the biggest hit? Of those, no. was that the no man boom was unequivocally the talk biggest. us through that. So this these were a whole series of um, signs at Sydney Airport, okay. and um, we bought them in a consortium with James Packer, Robert White, and us, and that has been the gift that keeps on giving. And you're still holding them. We own a big chunk of it. We sold chunks of it along the way. But yeah, we okay. Been, it's been good. And after a big win, I mean, it's probably a bit later on in your investing career. Are you vulnerable post a big win to making crap investments for a period of time? Sure. The whole get out over your skis thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was interesting. I was talking to a guy who went limit up early and I sent him a book, the Pope Brosnan book called um, The First 20 Million is Always the Hardest. <laughs> um, anyway, he came back. He said, I remember your book now. <laughs> you know and the thing about it is yeah i think everybody gets up over their skis and thinks they're a genius and stuff like that um you know you learn pretty quickly you get back and you get up and but does that get, stop happening as you get i think older? so i've got a, two interesting thoughts about that the first one is i've got another clever clever guy who says to me Making it once proves nothing. You can just get lucky. Making it twice, you feel better. By the time it's three times, it's not luck anymore. Hold that thought and hold the other thought that for whatever reason, a huge number of people in Australia are what I call one good season of put football people, right? And that, I think, is a useful insight to think about investing over time, mm. which is... A lot of Australians only ever really want to do it once and then because they played one good season of football, they'll find a nice house in the North Shore mm. and just get their mates together and talk about the 97 grand final and still talk about it, the fact that they're going to win the comp next year. It's like, dude, it was 97 <laughs> a long time yeah. ago and you haven't had another win like that. And then I think the orientation is second time round, if they're going again after the second time round, then they're just going to keep on doing it forever. Yeah. The, just the machinery and what you get out of it and you, wanting to prove yourself and stuff like that. And so that's really my view in terms of backing entrepreneurs is, um, you know, if they've done it twice and they're coming to do it again, then they do it for the love of it and they're probably pretty good. What about if you get an entrepreneur present to you who's had it one failure? 
No, the failure's irrelevant. It's a yeah. question. I mean, I would, you know, it's really do they learn from it or not? Do they blame it on somebody else? Do they say, actually, here are the six or seven things I learned? I'd celebrate failure. I still think Australia does not celebrate yeah. failure anywhere near as much as it should. But it's almost like people aren't even allowed one here where they're just about given a life ban, yeah. don't you think? I do. I think it's still a huge, huge piece of stigma. In San Francisco, you almost someone's yeah, almost uninvestable unless they've had exactly. at least one failure. Absolutely. So that's not a bad segue into your current mm-hmm. funds uh, or business. Uh, talk to MH. Carnegie and Co. You've got eight for funds platforms. They're called. Um, talk us through that and, and the philosophy behind the current mm. shop. Investment philosophy is a really, really complicated thing. And what I'd say to people is, I'm in a very obscure niche of the investment world. Um, and do go and read your Buffett and Munger and all of the traditional stuff. But if you're just starting out. I, what we're talking about from now on is is a really, really obscure corner of the investment market because what effectively I am is a broken market investor. So I'm looking for a market dislocation for whatever reasons to be at all interested in trying to do anything. So we were buying US medical device companies at pennies on the dollar a little while ago. We were buying pubs when there was four and a half billion dollars worth of non-performing pub investments the, on the balance sheets of the banks in Australia. I was in Indonesia after Suharto died buying TV stations at four times cash flow, like the stories of the um, Bell Resources convertible bonds. Ultimately, you know, I am absolutely somebody who's running into the burning building while other people are running out. And that is just not what other people do. Um, and then the second part of what I do is I say, look, capital's a commodity. I'm a greedy guy. My investors invest with me because I'm a greedy person. So ultimately, I'm a high cost provider of capital, which is a commodity. And that is a terrible thing to do. If you're up the cost cur- curve in a commodity business, you're likely to get your head handed to you. So, so why th- are you a high cost provider of capital? Because you've got staff working No, because I'm just greedier. <laughs> <laughs> I just want a higher return. <laughs> Nothing sophisticated about it. You've right? got money sickness. It's I like, like it. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. don't it's get good. sophisticated about it, right? Yeah. But, and so it's like... So the only other part, other than finding a condition of local scarcity where the market is broken, is that I can manufacture a solution, that I can take a product, which is my own capital, and provide a solution to somebody's other problem. And that's part of what we're trying to do as well, which is figure out a way out of complex net, you know, our networks of contacts and relationships to take money as a commodity and turn it into something else. And so you try and add value on everything you invest in? Absolutely. The current I, shop. You're not just a passive investor no, and just... No, absolutely not. And truth be told, I thought when I started the business after I sold the last... Whilst and I sold the last one to the Lazard, that, um, you know, the venture market was busted enough where I was going to be able to get into that. And literally, by the time I got the money from the government for this IA... Um, we were in a situation where two or three venture deals had done well and suddenly the money flooded back in and I was out of that. And as I say, looking at American um, 
medical device venture capital instead and bringing the companies to Australia yeah. as a better way to do it. And do you take a board seat on most of those investments? Either me or one of the people here does, absolutely. But I'm convinced that the it is you know, essential that you have increasingly bigger and bigger roles in your companies. So if you, am I right in saying your current investment philosophy is closer to the Warren Buffett cigar butts, then I'm happy to pay a premium price for a premium business. Yeah, absolutely. So Hellman and Friedman would have been much what more what I call GARP investors, growth at a reasonable price yeah. investors. Um, and that was really the core of what I call the intellectual philosophy, investment philosophy. It just, and it's better overall. And in terms of anybody going away and saying, what should I do? Without a doubt, that is what yeah. other people should do. It just doesn't suit my personality. Yeah, or your cost of capital. Well, even no, greedy. How, other... it. how did you frame it? I can't remember. <laughs> 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 pillars of, I, was, I was hearing one of the pillars of MHK. <laughs> so um, I just wanted to finish off with, in 2030, uh, my eldest son will be 18 years of yeah. age. Mm -hmm. I've got three questions, and I know you're not a futurist, but I'm hoping you'll have a stab at it. Will the US dollar still be the reserve currency of the world? Pass. Pass is not an option. No, in the spirit of it, are you going to come back to it? I just don't feel like I've got a strong conviction about that. In the spirit of how it my own, give me a probability of seven I did, out my of ten. Own, no, I can't. Okay. I really, I'm okay. not going right. to. Buffett's got this great line <laughs> where he says, "I've got three. I, everybody else has got an in tray or an out tray. <laughs> I've got a yes, a no, and a too hard. I'm not going to bother with it. Right? I just, I, I can get these out at the start of the interview. And you well, certainly that one. It's like I'm, I'm just. You're right. I'm not a futurist. Okay. okay. All right. Well, these last two are going to be problematic too. Then I well, suspect. Will, will he ever drive his own car, or will cars be fully autonomous by the year 2030? Best guess. Best estimate. No, not going to do that. Either. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and will artificial intelligence have smashed the job market by 2030, or will it be the same as the introduction of computers and the jobs will have just evolved? Without a doubt, number three, we are going to evolve on on jobs. Without a doubt, that that I feel strongly about. The other two, the answer is that is just not what I do, and I don't want people to sit there and say, "Mark, I know you thought the U.S. dollar was going to stay strong or weak or something like that, and we were going to move instantaneously to autonomous vehicles." I don't have a strong view. You don't want some snotty-nosed podcaster in three years' time to come and say you, you made no, well, this prediction. Also, that... it's just not what I do. It's yeah, not, yeah. You know, I can find weird things. I can perfectly give you an argument about why Papua New Guinea is going to be a good investment market over the next three years when everybody else thinks it's terrible. That is stuff where I can absolutely talk. America, not at all. By contrast, on number three, we've got questions about all of this thing about the frictional cost and the structure of the displacement that's going on at the moment. So I do believe the McKinsey arguments that say 50% of the jobs that we have at the moment are going to go. Where I have a stark contrast with, be it Daniel here or McKinsey or any of the others who say that's going to be a catastrophe, is I do actually believe that human beings are able 
to think about problems like think through problems like that and come up with constructive solutions about it and it's not like there isn't work to be done the issue is how do you create a functioning economy to allow the works that needs to be done to be stapled to an economic system that's going to function for everybody it's why I'm a supporter of trialing, big word, trialing, a UBI, a universal basic income. Because if you, we can have another conversation about that. You've got the Northern Territory, South Australia and Tasmania and the regions all in Australia that are failed states. They just are. Yeah. Just functionally, all what happens is huge amounts of tax and transfers gets picked up from the successful economies in Australia and dumped in the regions. They continue to fail. You keep on pouring more money. Part of your taxes went to $28 billion for these submarines down in you know, South Australia. The way our taxes and transfer systems work at the moment is absolutely nuts. Whereas a UBI, there are some really, really good numbers out of the UK, Nigeria, and a whole series of other places that say it really, really works way better than our existing system of tax and transfers. And so I want to trial it. Now, I've talked to Miranda Stewart and John Daly at the Grattan and Miranda Stewart's at ANU, and they say, are you kidding? We've got one of the best taxes and transfer systems in the world in Australia. You've got to deal with the tapers over, you know, education to employment you've got to deal with Mm. working mothers getting back into the workforce and you've got to deal with people who are you know want a glide path rather than a cliff on retirement but we're not having those conversations which actually think through this wave that we're going to have in terms of the change to the job market so sorry for the political broadcast at the end and it's not what you wanted but we've got to be those are the real issues we've got to be engaging with i'm an optimist about being able to figure out how to do it australia's got great great history of being able to solve these problems in really really intelligent ways and people smarter than me say the ubi is rubbish but there's also part people a lot smarter than me around the world who say the UBI is a better solution. Very interesting. Thank on you very note, much for having me. Thanks very much for coming on. Really appreciate it. I loved catching up with Mark Carnegie and felt like I learned a huge amount from our time together. Key takeaways for me was his desire to really know what you're suited to as an investor. It felt like Mark knew his personality and knew which companies he was suited to investing in. The other thing I took away is really being aware of the potential risks posed by fiat currencies and the all-encompassing power of tech giants in the amount of thought that Mark's giving to those two major issues is food for thought for all investors. Once again, I'd like to thank the support given to us for this podcast by Think Markets. If you want more information, head to thinkmarkets.com or download their Think Trader app if you're looking to trade in currencies, commodities, indices, stocks or CFDs. Next week on the show, we fly over to Perth to sit down with Andrew Chapman, the founder of Merchant Funds Management Group. Hope you stick around to listen. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a comment or wherever else you get your podcasts from.